Well, this is it, the completion of our year-long series in the book of Jeremiah. As Peter said, it's the 32nd sermon in a 52-chapter book. And we come to the last chapter this morning, last but not least, the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah. So please turn there. Often at this time of year, we hear about three wise men, and sometimes, probably inaccurately, about three kings. Well, Jeremiah 52 is a tale of three kings. Let's read about them from verse 1 of Jeremiah 52. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. This is king number one. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king number two, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried away all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in temple service. 
The commander of the Imperial Guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea, and the twelve bronze bulls under it, and the movable stands which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each of the pillars was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on top of the one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its pomegranates was similar. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. The total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was 100. The commander of the guard took his prisoners, Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and seven royal advisers. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, and 60 of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity, away from her land. This is the number of the people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, 832 people from Jerusalem. In his 23rd year, 745 Jews taken into exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Imperial Guard. There were 4,600 people in all. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, this is king number three, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison on the 25th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. Well, it may surprise you to know or perhaps not, that the passage we've just read has, over the centuries, been given a bad rap by many people. This was exemplified to me earlier this week when I turned to a favorite commentator of mine, uh, having consulted the brilliant mind of John Calvin a few times throughout the series, I turned to what he would have to say on Jeremiah 52. Uh, To my disappointment, however, I came across the following quote. The last chapter, as it is historical, and all its parts have been elsewhere handled, Holy Calvin did not expound in his lectures that he might not burden the hearers with superfluous repetitions. Actually, Calvin is not alone in uh, this opinion. Uh, He and other Scholars and preachers have pointed out that the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah is substantially a repeat of the 39th chapter 
of this same book. Perhaps you remember the sermon on it and maybe you were having a sense of deja vu in the reading. It's also completely identical almost to the end of the book of 2 Kings chapter 24. So why entertain this repetition? Uh, Is this an unnecessary case of deja vu? Other critics have also uh, leveled a further criticism. Uh, They say that this chapter fares no better for stylistic reasons. Uh, In their opinion, this uh, 52nd chapter is a cold anticlimax to what has otherwise been a barn-burning book. Rather like reading a page-turning novel, which has gripped you all the way to the penultimate chapter, only to turn to the finale and see it fall inexplicably flat. And so it may seem, following the fervent prophecies, political intrigue, perilous adventures of the prophet Jeremiah, and six explosive chapters of prophecy to the nations. Isn't this a bit of a letdown? This dry and studied chapter, the work of a cool historian. Well, that is how it may at first appear. And yet, if we are to take Scripture seriously, which I hope we do, uh, we would have to assume that these criticisms are somewhat misplaced. Our assumption should be, surely, that the God who inspired, who breathed out the Word of God, thereby also arranged both the design and structure of each passage. Are we then suggesting that God has botched the job? Are we saying that in this instance, God is a poor editor of one of his 66 books? No, surely, Jeremiah 52 is in precisely the correct location. And if we can't understand its design, it is not scripture that has to be reconsidered, but our thinking about it. And so before we go any further, I just wanted to address this issue very briefly. And let me suggest to you perhaps a different way of looking at this conclusion to the book. Consider this thought, that if the promises of prophecy never translate into actual history, then that prophecy is false prophecy. If it never translates from from the poetry that is prophecy into the prose and into the facts of history, that prophecy is not true prophecy. We've read almost 51 chapters of prophetic material full of promises of judgment and promises of salvation. But how are we to know that Jeremiah's prophecies were in fact true? And how are we to know that the God who made promises through the prophet is a God who keeps his word? Is it not if and when the prophecy becomes history? Yes, and this is why Jeremiah 52 is so crucial. It underlines with indisputable historical evidence that Jeremiah was no fraud and that God was not faithless to the promises which he made. Even the most unlikely promise of all, the fall of Jerusalem, which nobody believed would happen, and the exile came to pass in history. 
Now, bearing this in mind and seeing that perhaps this is the function of closing with history, let's consider this account in some more detail. And what I would like to do as we walk through the passage is follow it through the way the passage does, by by taking us to three kings and seeing in them and through them the fulfillment of God's prophecy and promises. Three kings, one faithful God to his word. So king number one is King Zedekiah. And we're going to consider Zedekiah an evil rebellion. Now Zedekiah was the 20th and last king of Judah. He was very significant in terms of the life of the nation and its downfall. And yet as we come to this chapter, there are scant details that we receive about him. Verse 1 simply tells us that he was 21 years old when he became king. That he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. And really apart from this, we only learn another two things about the identity of his mother in verse 1, and about the wickedness of his father and his influence over him. Hardly a lot of information we're given. However, one incisive fact, one damning and dreadful fact is added to these others. It is as concise as it is condemning. Verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Think about that for just a moment. Perhaps, who knows, Zedekiah did good in the eyes of the people. Possibly, even probably, he was a popular monarch. Or as popular as they got in Judah. Certainly must have had something going for him to hold together the people through an 18-month siege. And yet, regardless of Zedekiah's other virtues... Whatever the people thought of him, however good they thought his leadership style, the bottom line was that in the sight of God, this king was a moral failure. So it can be, so it can tragically be in the life of any leader. Surely this has particular relevance to any here who are in positions of leadership. It doesn't matter how good you look in the sight of people. If you look evil in the sight of the Lord, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how good people think your leadership is if God thinks you're a bad apple. And therefore, godly leaders live in the sight of God primarily and only in the sight of other people secondarily because they know this is what ultimately matters. Unfortunately, however, Zedekiah had no interest in how God saw him. Zedekiah's life was full of idols and pride, full of greed and violence. And this sadly epitomized the nation which he led. And inevitable results followed, as he always do when we sin against the Lord. Verse 3 tells us it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to, to Jerusalem and Judah. Notice something very obvious, and this is very obvious, that verse 3 follows verse 2. It not only follows it in number, it also follows it in logic. Verse 2, the king is wicked. Verse 3, God is very angry. We've seen this pattern in the book, haven't we? People sin, God simmers. 
Our evil leads to God's anger. It's why the book of Jeremiah is so full of God's fury, because it's so full of people's sin. I was doing a bit of uh, research this week into how often the anger or the wrath of God is mentioned in this book. And I discovered that God's anger is mentioned at least once in chapters 3, 4, 7, 8, 11, and 12. Also, in chapters 17, 18, 23, 25, 32, 33, and 36. We're not done. 39, 42, 44, 49, 51. And in this chapter, in all these places, God is exceptionally angry. Because the people are exceptionally wicked. And God's anger is pure, and it is measured, and it is just. The ancient philosopher Aristotle once said that anyone can be angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, and for the right purposes, that is not easy. That's true for people. But I don't think that's true for God. I don't think it's hard for God. If I may say so, God is very good at getting angry. He always gets angry at the right person, at the right time, to the right degree, and for the right outcome. He's completely justified in his fury. And this leads to a further result. Notice, we need to get this pattern into our mindset. Our evil leads to God's anger, which leads in turn to expulsion from his presence. When God gets angry, he doesn't throw a punch. When God gets angry, he doesn't shout. He sends people out from his presence in judgment. Verse 3, in the end, he thrusts them from his presence. Literally, it means to be taken away from God's face. As sometimes we might say, get out of my sight. That's what God says to these people. That's why we find that the result of the people's sin in this book is exile. Because God's anger leads to our expulsion. And, you know, when we think about this, separation, it's the worst kind of judgment, isn't it? Uh, When my children are exceptionally naughty, which is far too often, they receive a form of discipline that they really don't like. It is our last resort. We tell them what they've done, and then we tell them how we're going to punish them, and then we put, in fact, we only do this with the oldest one just now, we put him in his room, and we close the door, and we stand on the other side of the door silent. And we don't do it for very long because he hates it. You know, it would be better if we gave him a smack. It would be better if we shouted at him. At least he would have our presence. Separation is the pits. And separation is what it was for Judah. And separation is what it will be for everyone who finally rejects and rebels against God. If we continue to go our own way, one day God will send us away. And it's no empty threat. We'll see that in the next point. Jesus spoke of those who would come to the door and the door would be closed and he would send them away and he would say, I never knew you. 
Paul the Apostle explained of such people that they will be punished with everlasting destruction. This is 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And shut out from the presence of the Lord. What a terrible thing. I can hardly imagine the horror of that. And I can hardly imagine this morning, if you're a Christian, that you're not putting your faith in Christ to avoid that. And if you are a Christian this morning, let me also say to you, don't sit too comfortably. Let me also say that, that we cannot sin with immunity. Now, it's true that a Christian can never be finally expelled from the presence of God. That's the, the grace of God and the wonder of the gospel. And yet, isn't it true that the same pattern can be true in a lesser sense, and certainly in an experiential sense? Sin leads to anger, leads to distance. Remember, when the great king of Israel, David, had sinned terribly against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, you can read of his prayer, and he pleaded with the Lord to forgive him of his sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's praying for God to forgive him. And why? In verse 11, the next verse, he says this, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David understood that his disobedience would lead to distance from God. And so it is also for the Christian. Paul the Apostle therefore writes to believers in Ephesians 4 verse 30, and he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our sinning leads not to the absence of the Holy Spirit, but it does lead to the grieving of the Holy Spirit. What do you think the effect of that would be? What do you think the effect would be in our experience if and when we grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin? Would it not be a sense of distance from God? We need to see this connection. That may not be the reason this morning why, why you feel God is distant if you're a Christian. There are other reasons. But perhaps this is the reason that you're involved in some habitual sin and therefore you're grieving the Spirit and he, God feels far off today. Well, such is the pattern that emerges from King Zedekiah's rebellion. There's much to be learned, but we have to move swiftly on to our second king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, our fierce retribution. From verse 4 onwards, King Zedekiah begins to decrease in influence, and King Nebuchadnezzar begins to increase in stature. In fact, you notice that by verse 12, it's interesting, the dating systems used uh, throughout the chapter, by verse 12, the dating system begins to be paralleled, reckoned by Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Not Zedekiah anymore. He's fading out the picture. And yet as we read his rise to power, and as we read of how he conquers Jerusalem and Judah, we must bear in mind that he does this under the auspices of God's rule and command. You may remember in the context of the book, we've come across it several times, that Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. What a remarkable expression. And underpinning verses 4 to 30, 
we must not forget verse 3. Verse 3 in this chapter is the key to understanding what follows. Sure, Nebuchadnezzar carries out his retribution, but it is really God who is executing his judgment. What a devastating judgment it is. Begins in verse 3 at the end, Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And the king of this overlord nation, hardly the benevolent type, doesn't have the word forgiveness in his dictionary. He immediately brings his whole army and marches against the city of Jerusalem. And from there the destruction follows as the work of a cool historian records. Almost passionless, the author uh, describes how Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, verses 4 to 6, captured the city, verses 7 to 8, uh, killed Judah's key officials, verse 10, and then how he sentenced Zedekiah, slaughtering his sons and sending them off to exile and prison. And then adding insult to injury, verses 12 to 13, he burns the temple of the Lord, as Jeremiah had promised would happen. All the key homes demolished Jerusalem's walls so that it would be defenseless, verse 14. And he exiled the, really most of the remainder of the citizens who hadn't already gone, verse 15 and 16. He plunders the temple, verses 17 to 23. And then he even kills the key religious leaders so that it wouldn't start up again. Fair to say, this is a comprehensive defeat. This, if you like, is a knockdown punch that Nebuchadnezzar comes up with. One commentator sums it up that Jerusalem was demolished, depopulated, and desecrated. Or if you like retribution by numbers, there were 4,600 exiles over three visits that Nebuchadnezzar made to Judah. And possibly many more were in fact taken. When we compare this account with others, In the Old Testament, it seems that there perhaps was a much higher number, maybe as many as 20,000 taken. It could be here that this is just the number of the men, excluding the women and the children. But a sizable number regardless. And the key thing here is to see that this horrendous defeat fulfilled God's promises of judgment to his people in history. All the promises throughout this prophet, uh, prophecy were not just empty warnings or threats. What God promised in principle worked out in practice. And what we see in verses 1 to 3 that tells us about God's response to sin in principle, sin, anger, expulsion, is then worked out also in verses 4 to 30. God doesn't just talk a good game. God doesn't do hype. The historical record confirms that his promises of judgment are no empty rhetoric. This should impact us this morning. God says what he means, and he means what he says, and he does what he says he will do. We don't live, of course, in this time. We're not looking forward, perhaps, to a future exile. But we live in the period after the first coming of Jesus Christ, and awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is coming not only to save some, he is also coming to bring judgment. And God's promises of judgment on those who do not turn to Christ are no empty threats. If you doubt that, history proves 
that in the past when God promised judgment, he followed through. There's a great stir at the moment about a, a film coming out. I'm not sure if it is out yet. The Golden Compass. It's based on a trilogy of books by a guy called Philip Pullman called His Dark Materials. And Pullman is basically, if you want to read on him, he's the, the sort of atheist uh, alternative to C.S. Lewis. Okay? C.S. Lewis wrote all these fantasy stories to children, bringing in the Christian message. This guy writes to children also in fantasy language, describing uh, how wrong the Christian faith is as he perceives it. And one criticism Pullman brings to the table, which isn't new, is that the church, the magisterium, has invented various myths, particularly the existence of God. It's just a myth. And therefore, if God is a myth, then sin is a myth. And if sin is a myth, then the fall of Adam and Eve is just a fairy story that somebody made up. It's really a manipulative story invented by the church to repress the masses. And the thing is that many people believe the work of someone like Pullman. That Christianity has no historical foundation, that it is pure invention, and they take it as read from what they read. The thing that gets me is that Pullman writes about this in a fantasy novel. And the sad thing is many will read him and will not actually consider the historical facts and the historical claims of Christianity before dismissing it. You know the conversation, uh, why do you not believe that there's any God? Well, says your non-Christian friend, everyone knows that there's no God. But you say, some people do believe that there is a God. Oh, they say, that's because the church invented it. I read about it in the Da Vinci Code. If you're going to reject Christianity, at least do so on a historical basis. Friend, if you're not a Christian, give close consideration to history because God is not some mythical figure who works outside of history. He has actually worked in history. You can go back and examine his judgments all the way from the flood through to the exile. And you can also examine his work in salvation, first through the nation of Israel, from Abraham all the way along, and to the person of Jesus Christ who is a real, verifiable, historical figure. Examine the evidence. As we examine this evidence, it shows that the God we're dealing with is a God of justice. He's a God who follows through. He not only opposes sin in principle, but in practice. Now somebody says, in this case, what then is the hope for any of us? After all, the Bible tells us and teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's Romans 3.23. And if God always follows through on his judgment on sin, and if all of us sin, then we are in a bit of a pickle, are we not? We're going to be in permanent exile if that's the case. And in fact, in that instance, perhaps we've mistitled the sermon. series. Peter, maybe living in hope wasn't as good a title as we thought. Perhaps living in despair might be more appropriate. But praise God, there's a third king in the chapter. 
And there is hope. Jeconiah, a surprising rise. We didn't get the title of the series wrong because of Jeconiah and the reminder of how he rose to prominence. Throughout this book, we've seen that God's judgment is only the backdrop to God's working in mercy. God makes a way by which sinners can be saved from the judgment to come. And through Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, as he's variously called, we see this happening. This book ends with a hint of hope about the future. Now, Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, was a king in prison and in exile. Many years prior, he had succeeded his father, Jehoiakim, to the throne. That was in 599 BC. And he was only eight years of age at the time. Probably didn't have much leadership skills at that age, so he didn't last very long. And he was succeeded after uh, 100 days by his uncle, we've already met him, Zedekiah. However, when the Babylonians came and uh, swept up Jerusalem and King Zedekiah, they also took young Jeconiah into exile. And along with his uncle, they put Jeconiah into prison, presumably because, being an ex-king, he would have been a bit of a threat in the general population. You don't want an ex-king sort of rousing up the rabble. And so for 37 years, did you notice that? For four long decades, Jeconiah was left to rot in a Babylonian jail. That's pretty much the low point in the book, is it not? That's hopelessness. Forty years in exile and your king or your ex-king is in prison. But suddenly, inexplicably, surprisingly, something remarkable happens. A new Babylonian king comes to power after Nebuchadnezzar. This guy, evil Merodach, he comes to the throne and for reasons known especially to God, he shows favor to Jeconiah. Jeconiah is firstly released, verse 31, freed from prison on the 25th day of the 12th month. Immediately he's reclothed, verse 33. Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes. And then thirdly, he is recognized. As a king with a high place, verse 32, he's spoken kindly to by the Babylonian king. Verses 33 and 4, he's given a place at the king's table and a food allowance for the rest of his days. And don't miss verse 32. He gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, he's taken over so many nations, there's a whole bunch of kings all there at the same time. And literally, the verse says, he set his throne above the other thrones. What is God doing? Clearly, God is raising up this king. Reading between the lines. But what what is he doing? What is he saying through this? There's a film that came out... uh, I think it was last year in the cinema called Children of Men. Some of you may have seen Children of Men. It's set in a a fantasy future, about 50 years from now. And the premise of the film is that at this point, the human race uh, is having fertility problems. People can't have children. 
Nobody knows why. And uh, the, the, the youngest member of the human race is about 28 years old. And the whole situation is descending into chaos. And as we pick it up in the film, there's hope that suddenly comes onto the scene. A woman is discovered to be pregnant. And in the film, we follow as a team of people try to, to take her safely to a, an institute where she can be examined and the baby can be born and they can figure out how life is going to continue. Crazy story. The life of the human race tied up in one lineage and one baby. Perhaps they borrowed the idea from the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, for a dying human race, there was a lineage of life. It was called the line of David. King David, Israel's greatest king, had received this promise that through his descendants, someone great, some great king, savior would come. And you see, this is the key thing. Jehoiachin is in fact the last remaining descendant on this line. God had promised judgment on sin many times in this book. But before this, he had made promises in the Old Testament of his salvation through this lineage. Promises like, uh, even in this book, Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will live in safety. What is the point? I think the point is this. Jeremiah 52 ends by reminding us that God hasn't forgotten about this promise. God is holding the line. God is preserving this lineage that will bring life to the human race. Amidst the chaos and the death and the exile, and the judgment, and the pain, God is working his salvation out. He's not forgotten about this promise either. And Jeconiah is therefore placed above all the other kings to remind us that there's one coming after him who will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, that's a wonderful bit of principle is it just fantasy? Is it just poetry? Or is it reality? This was worked out in history. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, we read about the lineage of life. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. From Jehoiakim, to Jesus. The eminently quotable Philip Ryken says, This is the happy ending Jeremiah always hoped for. 
but never got to write. And never got to see. But we see it, don't we? We live in a time when we look back to the fulfillment of God's promise to that first Christmas when Jesus came. And not just as a baby to be born, but as a saviour to die. So we think about it Easter. And as a king to rule. And because he died, because this king, this perfect king, laid down his life as a sacrifice for us, God's judgment can be averted from us. It can be turned away and removed from us. But only through Jesus, only through this line, only through this king. Jesus Christ is the name, the only name, given under heaven amongst men, by which we must be saved. And so at the end of this whole series, which is majored on hope against the backdrop of judgment, and which finishes by pointing us forward to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, let let me ask you this morning, do you have any hope? Do you have any hope today? Or are you living this Sunday morning in despair? Many people are living in despair in our society today. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that hopes in this world are usually shattered and the hope that the world promises doesn't deliver. But today you can know a hope that is permanent, that is true, and that is real. It is based upon the life and death and resurrection of a historical person, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled God's promises in history. You can know that hope today in your life. You need to come and put your faith and your trust in the person of Jesus and you need to turn away from your life of sin and you need to give yourself over. You need to bow down before the throne of King Jesus who can give you life and joy and peace and hope and forgiveness. And if you know him, if you know him today, Jeremiah should be a book that in the days and in the years ahead should fire your hope. See, we we still live in days of exile. We live, says Peter, as strangers and as exiles and foreigners in the world. And we're waiting not for the first coming, but for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for the new Jerusalem. And to us, God still says, I know the plans I have for you, Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Whatever your circumstances are this morning. This has been the text for this year. This is what's been on the the bookmarks in our books, on the verse for the year card. But is this text writ large across our lives and is it in our hearts? Does it sum us up as a church? Are we a church full of optimists? Every Christian should be an optimist. Or are we pessimists? Because Jesus lived, died, and is alive again in fulfillment of God's promise, we should be people of hope.
May God bless his word. Let's pray.